Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. Okay, good morning everyone. Right, Doug's away, so you've got me. People always tell me I speak too fast. I have a lot of things to say. This morning's going to be no different, so I'm just going to dive right in. The topic for this morning is called The Living and Enduring Word of God. And our text will be 1 Peter chapter 1, if you could turn there please. We'll read the text and then we'll get into it. So it's 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 22. It says this, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for your word. We thank you for all the truth it contains. We pray now that you would just speak through my words, Lord, and that the word of God would be lifted up and your son Jesus would ultimately be glorified. In his name and for his sake, we pray. So this morning, surprise, surprise, I'm talking to you about the Word of God. You see, the Bible, and we've been doing this in the mornings for the last however many months now, and I hope many of you get an understanding, that the Bible is unique in many, many ways. You see, even after thousands of years, it still remains the world's best-selling book every single year, without fail, by at least 100 million sales. And it probably has ever since it was first printed. Even though it's been banned and burnt and challenged throughout its entire history, it has had more impact on civilization than any other book in history. Uh, a recent History Channel documentary that was called 101 Objects That Changed the World said that the single thing that changed the world more than anything else was the Bible. And what I want to look at a little bit today is why. What is it about this book? that gives it such impact and allows it to have these sorts of figures that go with it. Why do some people love it and why do some people despise it? The playwright George Bernard Shaw, he said it's the most dangerous book in the world. You lock it up and you put it under your bed and you keep your children away from it. Whereas other people say that you must start teaching it to your children as soon as they're born. Why is this? Why is it in Tudor England owning a Bible could get you sent to the stake? Owning one in Stalin's Russia could get you sent to the gulags. Owning one in North Korea today is punishable by death. Just this week, I had a video sent to me, well not to me, but put out by International Christian Concern, a a Christian human rights agency that monitor Christian persecution. And it was a video of of Indian Christian missionaries uh, pulled off the road by a group of radical Hindus. And they had about eight, nine hundred Hindi Gospels in the back of their car. And uh, the radicals obviously built a bonfire by the side of the road and and burnt all their Bibles. And this thing happens all over the world today and it has throughout history. Why is this? You see, I think these people, they know that when people start disseminating the Word of God, things start to change. 
Hearts are changed, lives are changed, and ultimately nations are changed by the word of God. There are two things in particular that often start. You see, the Bible teaches the radical notion that all humans are created equal in the image of God. That's why despots don't like it. That's why dictators don't like it. You can't down... That's why people who have a caste system in their religion, Hindus, don't like it. And it also teaches that there is just one God. Just with those two things alone, that means for most of the world today, it is really a very dangerous book because it stands in judgment over them. These are some of the reasons. Yet history proves the impact of the Bible is always in the direction of greater love, justice and care for humanity. Now I know there are those who have twisted and distorted the scriptures to their own ends that have had horrible histories on the world. But ignoring them for this talk, the real record of the Bible is one of greater compassion for mankind. Let me start by reading you a letter. Now, this is a real letter, it's found in, obviously, uh, found in Egypt uh, a while ago now, but it's dated to the first century BC. It's a letter from a husband to a wife. Uh, the husband had to travel from the home city to find work. His wife is pregnant back at home. And he's writing to reassure her that it's going well, he's got more work, and he might not be back in time for the birth, so please don't be anxious. Let me read it to you. It says, Hilarion to his sister Alice. Uh, to, the term sister was a, a very intimate term for relationships, quite often used between husband and wife at this time. It says, Very many greetings. And likewise to my lady Berus and Apollinarian. Know that we are still in Alexandria. Do not be anxious. If they really go home, I will remain in Alexandria. I beg and entreat you, take care of the little one. And as soon as we receive our pay, I will send it up to you. If by chance you bear a child, if it is a boy, let it be. If it is a girl, throw it out. You have said to Aphrodisias, do not forget me. How can I forget you? I beg you then. Do not be anxious. Sweet love letter, yes? If it is a girl, throw it out. Now the girls were considered much less valuable in the ancient Near East. And we know the, this is still the case in a lot, of, uh, a lot of places in the world today. If it is a girl, throw it out. It's written with just not even batting an eyelid. This was a very common practice in the, in the ancient Near East and the ancient world. Now what was it? that confronted these practices in the ancient world. If you know your history, it was the impact and influence of the gospel and Christianity. As the gospel spread around these parts of the world, laws were made that outlawed these sorts of things. Christianity spread, it transformed the world, and it did it by transforming hearts and minds, not primarily by making laws. They came after the hearts and minds which were changed. It brings people into line with the word of God. What did we just read in 1 Peter? In obedience to the truth, you purify your souls. In obedience to the truth, because you've been born again through the living and enduring word of God. This is why the Bible has been at the root of most of the human rights movements in history. Probably the most prominent one being the African slave trade. We can all agree it's probably one of the most evil things in history. William Wilberforce, the Christian parliamentarian, Spearheaded the fight to abolish slavery. Now we know, I'm sure you've all, well, there's a lot, there's a film about it, and we hear a lot talked about it, even in kind of secular media. But behind the scenes, there was a lot going on that you might not know. Wilberforce had advice from two spiritual advisors, two giants of the faith. 
One of them was the slave trader turned preacher, hymn writer John Newton, famous for writing Amazing Grace. As Wilberforce became a Christian, when he was an MP, he became a Christian, and he struggled with the concept of how he could be both a Christian and a politician, serve his God and serve his country. He was thinking, are these two things mutually exclusive? Uh, a little like what we saw with the Tim Farron case recently. Um, but he, he was, that was what he was wrestling with. John Newton came to him and he said this, God has raised you up for the good of the church and the good of the nation. He says, maintain your friendship with Pitt, the, the Prime Minister at the time. Continue in Parliament. Who knows that but for such a time as this, God has brought you into public life and has a purpose for you. And those of you might recognise that phrase, for such a time as this. That's the words of Mordecai to Esther when she rises up to the royal court. For such a time as this, God has placed you in the royal court. It's the words of the Bible there. John Newton is best known for Amazing Grace. That's his most famous hymn. But tragically, one of his best hymns, in my opinion, was one that was found handwritten in the front of his Bible. It was never really very popular, but I guess it wasn't published too much. But it was found in, in the front of his Bible, and the Museum of the Bible in America actually owned this Bible. You can see it with the handwritten hymn in it. The hymn is called Precious Bible, What a Treasure. I'll read you the first verse. It says, Precious Bible, what a treasure does the word of God afford. All I want for life or pleasure, food and medicine, shield and sword, let the world account me poor, because having this, I need no more. There's four other verses, and they're all brilliant. Precious Bible, what a treasure. After ten years of fighting, Wilberforce and the fellow abolitionists, they thought they had enough support to get that abolition bill through Parliament. Uh, On the night of the vote, his political opponents... uh, This was a multi-million pound industry at the time, obviously, so there was a lot of opposition to what Wilberforce was doing. But they thought they had enough support. On the night of the vote... His opponents offered free opera tickets to all of the people in Parliament. And a lot of the people who should have been in the House that night voting chose to go to the opera. And that bill was defeated by four votes. Four votes. At this, Wilberforce had a nervous breakdown and his physical health collapsed. And he was on the brink of giving up. But it was again John Newton who came to him, this time with words from the book of Daniel on his lips. And he, he explained that Daniel was a public man like you, William. And like, like you, he found himself in great difficulty. But he trusted in the Lord and was faithful. And therefore, though he thought he had enemies, none could prevail against him. He told Wilberforce, and this is a quote from the, from the letter, that God whom you serve continually is able to preserve and deliver you. He will see you through. And this proved to be just the advice that Wilberforce needed to continue the fight, and we know how that ended. You again might recognise those words, the God whom you serve continually. This is the words of, from the book of Daniel, when King Darius has to throw Daniel into the lion's den. And and he runs and he says, may the God who you serve continually, he, he will save you. It's from the book of Daniel. That was one of the influences in Wilberforce's life. Another one came from John Wesley, the, uh, the Methodist preacher and his movement that, that changed this country. He wrote his last letter, the last letter he ever, letter ever wrote to William Wilberforce about his campaign to, to, of abolition. And he said this, "'Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, "'you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. "'But if God be for you, 
Who can be against you? Are all of them stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on, in the name of God and in the power of his might, till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall vanish away before it. You might notice many biblical references in, in Wesley's letter there. If God be for you, who can be against you? You see, it was encouragement and admonition from the word of God that was at the root of Wilberforce's campaign. The word of God has the power to change things. Isaiah 55, verse 11, So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God's word does not return void because it is living and active. In obedience to the truth, you have purified your souls. Therefore, fervently love one another. It's important we notice the, the way that that goes. Obedience to the truth, purify your soul, love one another fervently. And that's important. That order is important. You see, recently it's become the mantra in the world, particularly in the church, unfortunately, that you properly love people. It in fact now requires us to be disobedient to the truth in certain areas. Or at least we need to maybe redefine what truth is so that we don't offend people's sensibilities. Now, I don't really like to, to name names necessarily. Theologically, it's, I believe there's a place for it, but on a Sunday morning. But I'm going to, to give you the name of this guy just for the sake of clarity and confusion. Some of you will know him. His name is Steve Chalk. He's a big leader in Christian circles, uh, head of Oasis Trust, uh, involved in the big church day out, these sorts of things. He in honour of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, he's decided to imitate Martin Luther and he, he's doing 95 videos instead of 95 theses of Martin Luther. 95 videos to bring a new Reformation, Reformation to the church, basically, in his words, to bring it up to date. He wants to restore confidence in the Bible. And he blames the erosion of confidence in the Bible on those who, insist, those who insist on taking it literally. And he uses that term as a bit of a straw man there, not how anyone actually uses the term. He proceeds to undermine the authority of the Bible and he tries to make it basically fit Western liberal sensitivities. He undermines and he takes away the living power of Scripture in what he says. In one of the articles that he wrote explaining his views, I'm going to read to you some things of it, it's called, the, the article's called Restoring Confidence in the Bible. I'll just read it to you. Now, it's very clever in the way he writes because a lot of it sounds very good, but I want you to kind of look behind and end up seeing where he's going with it. So he says this, At the same time, in spite of 2 Timothy 3.16's proclamation that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, many Christians, let alone anyone else, sometimes wonder if it might be best to consign large chunks of it to a filing cabinet labelled no longer relevant. No Christians really that I read have that problem. I wonder who he's reading. Although we refer to the Bible as our sacred text, it is more accurately a collection of texts which have become sacred to the church. And together these documents form the account of an ancient sacred dialogue, a giant conversation initiated, inspired and guided by God with and among humanity about God, his creation and our role in it as his partners. 
We celebrate the Bible as inspired by God, who chooses dialogue over monologue. As such, we recognise that it contains various, sometimes harmonious, sometimes discordant, sometimes even contradictory voices, each of which contribute to the developing story of humanity's moral and spiritual imagination. I don't even know what that means. We do not believe that the Bible is inerrant or infallible in any popular understanding of these terms. The biblical texts are not a divine monologue where the solitary voice of God dictates a flawless and unified declaration, no one believes that, of his character and will to their writers. But nor are they simply a human presentation of and testimony to God. Rather, the Bible is most faithfully engaged as a collection of books written by fallible men whose work, at one and the same time, bear the hallmarks and limitations and preconceptions of the times and cultures in which they live but also the transformational experience they encounter with God. We believe that rather than ending with the finalisation of the canon, this dynamic conversation continues beyond it and involves all of those who give themselves to Christ's ongoing redemptive movement. Now, you might not pick up on a lot of that. What is the result, basically? If you don't know Steve Chalk, he denies pretty much every foundational doctrine of the Christian faith, particularly the substitutionary death of Christ. By these fancy words, what he's basically saying is it's allowing him to pick and choose the bits of the Bible that he wants, the, ones that he th- the bits that he thinks are applicable to today. And the only way he can do that is to try and say that it's not all from God, because why would he have the authority to do that? Let me be very blunt and frank here. What I've just read, all these sorts of words, an ongoing dialogue, a conversation, a progressive journey towards humanity's moral and spiritual uh, imagination, such talk is nothing more than postmodern drivel. Okay, and I say that frankly, I understand. I consider it nonsensical, contradictory and ridiculous. It's just an excuse, semantic word games to undermine the authority of the Word of God. At the end of these videos, he asks the question, do you agree with Steve on every video? Um, No, I don't agree with Steve. The erosion of the confidence in the Bible, I don't believe, is due to people taking it seriously. I don't believe it's from people who agree with Jesus. When he said that I do not come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have come not to abolish but to fulfil. Jesus said, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. I don't believe it's those people who are eroding confidence in the Bible. I believe the erosion in the confidence of the Bible happens when people like Steve hold it up to people as some sort of semi-quasi-spiritual conversation full of error and discordant voices that people just happened to record to us and it became sacred at some point in history of the church. Because what good is that, really, let's be honest? I believe that is what erodes confidence in the Bible. I believe with the Word of God when it says that all Scripture is inspired. Steve says in his letter that it's the authors whose message is inspired. The Bible says, no, it's the scripture, the graphe in Greek, the writings that are inspired by God. Jesus said every jot and tittle. Jot and tittle are Hebrew, thing, Hebrew letters, basically. is like a, you know, dotting an I and crossing a T. Every single thing is inspired. So I disagree with Steve, but I, I agree with someone like Martin Lloyd-Jones, who says there can be no doubt whatsoever that all the troubles in the church today, most of the troubles in the world, are due to a departure from the authority of the Bible. That's Martin Lloyd-Jones, if you know him, Westminster. 
In obedience to the truth, you have purified your souls. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Let me give you an example from Scripture that illustrates the problem that we've seen here. Second Samuel 6, verses 1 to 7. This is the story of David trying to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. He says, Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah, to bring up from, the, from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned above the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the cart. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of, made of fir, wood, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets and cymbals. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nekon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. This sounds like a, a pretty severe story to us. You have to understand in its context of what's going on. The tabernacle, the ark of God, this represented the place. This was basically God's dwelling place on earth. This is what it says in the second verse. The ark of God which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts. The point here is, God had given, in the Old Testament, very specific commands on how this ark was to be transported. There were certain people that he said could transport it, and there were certain people he said you must not touch it. Now for whatever reasons we, we can argue, but it was the priesthood that was allowed to do these things. When David was moving the ark, because they were not following the, the word of God, their intentions were probably very honourable. They wanted to bring it back safely to Jerusalem, but they had neglected God's command. God's command is his character. You really cannot separate the two there. Because of this, Uzzah should not have been carrying the ark. He should not have been anywhere near the ark at this time, and he definitely should have re- shouldn't have reached out and touched the ark. It says, because of his irreverence, what is that basically saying? Because they thought that they could do it their own way and in the, in the process they disregarded the word of God. And if you disregard the word of God, you're disregarding God. You don't really care what he says. You're doing it in your own flesh, your own strength, and you want to do it your own way. The word of God means nothing at this point. He thought he could do it his own way. He did not treat God as holy because God is holy. And I believe we commit the same sin when we stand in judge over the scriptures. Rather than that, we should have the attitude of the psalmist, Psalm 119, verse 161. My heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. I hate and I despise falsehood, but I love your law. Let me read you a quote from Oswald Chambers. He says, The words of God and the word of God stand together. To separate them is to render both powerless. Any expounder of the words of God is liable to go off on a tangent if he or she does not remember this stern, undeviating standard of exposition. Namely, that no individual experience is of the remotest value unless it is up to the standard of the Word of God. The Bible not only tests experience, it tests truth. The Bible tests all experience, all truth, all authority by our Lord himself and our relationship to him personally. We must understand and accept that the authority is in the Word of God and not in us. 
2 Samuel 22, As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is flawless. Flawless. It is when we live in obedience to the truth that we purify ourselves. But not only us, our surroundings. We become living epistles read by all men, it says in Corinthians, doesn't it? Matthew 5, verses 13 and 14. You are the salt of the earth. Salt at this age was a well-known preservative. That's what it was for. You are the salt of the earth. You preserve the earth, it's saying. But if the, ta- if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown and trampled underfoot by men. You are the salt of the earth. As we live obedient lives, as it says in Titus, we adorn, we wear the doctrines of Christ, the word of God. We influence the world. We allow the world to be influenced by the word of God. This is how the church acts as the salt of the earth, by living in obedience to the word of God. How do we lose our saltiness then? I believe quite simply it's when we sacrifice the word of God whether we do it on the altar of political correctness, cultural tolerance, any number of these things that come along, up and, you know, waves of doctrine that fly through the cultures and the church. But we live in obedience to the truth, we purify ourselves, and we adorn the doctrines of Christ, and that is what makes the church beautiful. Uh, Matt and Lucy, you know, some of you, a lot of you know Matt and Lucy, obviously, in the church. They're a recent example that illustrated this beautifully. Obviously, they, the little Ellie was at a Church of England school and she was being taught yoga. And they didn't, you know, if you know much about yoga, you know that it was designed to, um, well, but to facilitate the worship of Hindu gods. I know people who do it in, in our culture don't realise that, but that is where it comes from. And obviously, they objected to this. They didn't want Ellie involved in that. And they had a meeting with the dioceses, and they, managed, they got that cancelled. It was a very hard time. They were made to feel like they were being ridiculous. And I think the headmaster even said to them, because of, all, because of you, just two people, all these kids are not going to be able to enjoy yoga. But this is the point. Two Christian parents, living in obedience to the truth of God's word, stopped acted like Sultan, you see the cultural influence by living in obedience to the word of God now all of these children won't have to engage in a practice that was originally designed to bring them into communion with Hindu gods that's salt and light on the earth, that's just one tiny example that we could magnify hundreds of examples of things like that You know, nothing really crazy and out of the box not missionary stuff going on all over the world just two parents living obedient to the word of God in obedience to the truth you purify yourself and then it says back in 1 Peter you have been born again not of seed which is perishable but imperishable that is through the living and enduring word of God all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass the grass withers the flower falls off but the word of the Lord endures forever this is the word which is preached for you you see flesh man we're here like grass but for a moment we may flower we may have a bit of glory but we go But the word of the Lord stands forever. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. And it is this word that was preached to you. You were born again by the living word of God. This is exactly what Paul's talking about when he says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The word is alive. It is living and enduring. Hebrews 4.12, and turn there if you have got your Bible. Hebrews 4.12, 
For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is living. That means it has vital power inherent to itself, and it brings about lasting supernatural change. But it's not only alive itself, it also brings life where it goes. Jesus compared the word of God, his word, to a seed, didn't he, in the parable of the sower? What is a seed is something that is living, and it brings forth life. And this is what the word of God, this is why Hindu radicals want to burn the word of God when it's coming into their world. Because they know, they've seen, many of us have seen here, when people start reading the word of God, people get born again. Things start happening. It's the word of God, it's living. And the word active, this means it's on the move. Okay? It's on the move. It doesn't only bring life, it brings change. Because change lives, it changes the world. This reminds me of the verse in Colossians, where Paul says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. All the world it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. Why? Because it's living and it's active. It's doing its... Isaiah, his word does not return void. It's out there in the world. It's working. Now, this word active can also mean in the sense of it's capable of exerting influence. You see, God wants his word to influence our lives and change them for the better, ultimately to bring us closer to him, to bring us into conformity with his image. But he also wants, it, wants us to influence culture and change lives of those around us. We see the living word of God active throughout the Bible. We see it every time in our own lives when someone gets saved, when someone repents of their sin, when someone is healed, when someone is, you know, beats a drug addiction, all the many other things that we see people praying and, and hearing for. This is the living word of God, active and alive. We, see, we can see that his word, when spoken, convicted people of their sin, converted their hearts, raised the dead to life, made the deaf to hear, the blind to see, the mute to speak, and the lame to walk. This is the living and active word of God. And it is eternal, forever enduring, eternal in the heavens. Let me give you a, a current example that I believe illustrates this principle of the word of God sustaining someone in their life and also bringing judgment and correction at a time. Seeing if we've got any children in here. We haven't. How many of you have heard Rachel Den Hollander? If you see that name in the news. She was the American gymnast. The trial going through at the moment with a guy called Larry Nasser. He was the coach, the, the physio of the American gymnast team. He's on trial at the moment for over 150 counts of abuse of the, of the young girls in his care. And the trial, he had 150 girls testify against him at the trial. Rachel Den Hollander was the first girl to raise her voice against this man. She's, I think she's 25 now. This is going back to when she was 15. And she was the first to raise a complaint, and she was the last to stand before him in court. Uh, her, she, they, they do what they call an impact statement, where she gets to address the court, the jury, and Larry Nasser. If you, it's about 30 minutes long. I... I watch the whole thing this is an amazing girl this is a true heroine of all, of all the people we celebrate in our culture this is a real, a real girl what's amazing about this I'm going to read to you just the last kind of 10 minutes of it now you can I don't, obviously it's courtroom testimony it's graphic um, it's inspiring, painful, heart wrenching all at the same time 
But at the end, she addresses the, the judge, she addresses the court, she addresses the jury. And then, in the end, she turns directly to Larry Nasser, And she says this to him. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom. And you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you had read the Bible you carry... You know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. And by his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness. But Larry, if you had read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror, without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. If the Bible you carry says it is better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make one child stumble and you have made hundreds stumble. The Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And this is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet, because it extends grace and hope and mercy when none should be found, and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt, so that someday you may experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. This is a 25-year-old girl. It was an amazing speech. She even went on and she, she quoted C.S. Lewis and she used the moral argument. And this is in a courtroom in front of a judge, in front of a jury and everything like that. And it was a powerful, powerful moment. But what's more interesting is, obviously this went, kind of went viral, as they say. Millions of people watched this. Um, she did a follow-up interview with Christianity Today because of the, 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 you know, the impact that this statement made. And in this interview, she's explaining how in her own life, obviously, she struggled to come to terms with what has happened. She had the how questions, how can this happen to me, why God, and all these sorts of questions that you would expect to happen. And she said she worked through it with a lot of tears, and then she also said with a lot of studying. You know, now we hear these stories a lot, and a lot of studying is not often something that you hear attached to something like this. And then the, interview, the interviewer asks, where did you find the answer? And she said, going to scripture directly. And then she told the story from John 6, 68, where Jesus has just given that very uh, difficult sermon where he says that you need to uh, drink my blood and eat my flesh. Symbolically, he's talking. But a lot of the Jewish people at that time, they didn't understand it. The disciples came to him and saying, you know, Lord, this is too hard for people to understand. And then Jesus says to Peter, do you want to leave too, Peter? And Peter kind of thinks about it for a while and he says, Where else would I go, Lord? You have the words of life. And this young lady, she explains that at some points in her life when the answers were not coming or when she was in those times of darkness, she said she simply had to cling to the words of life. And they sustained her through that. What I believe we see there in that courtroom and in that ten minutes was quite literally a supernatural display of Christ's love from a woman who was obedient to the truth. And you can guarantee this was no concept of soppy sentiment sentimental love like we often have put up in our culture. 
you know, just love with romantic feelings or anything like that. This was sacrificial love. This was the love of Christ being witnessed right here. Remember she said she chooses to live like that. And I'm sure it went against many fibres in her being at that time. But in obedience to truth, she purified herself. This is love. 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. That's not an Old Testament verse, that's a New Testament verse. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Why? Because we know that God is love, says that in 1 John. The word of God was given to us to improve, to show us how to love. It comes from a God of love, it teaches us how to love. Therefore, living it out is displaying Christ's love to the world. That's what we do. 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul says, The goal of our instruction is love. Think how much Paul wrote of the New Testament. All the big theological and doctrinal themes that Paul, that Paul wrote. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is the word of God. This is not, old, this is not legalism. This is the word of God. Because as we adorn and wear the doctrines of Christ, as we live humbly, submit to them, we are just going to be displaying Christ's love for the world. It's countercultural, it's hard to understand sometimes, but it is radical in many senses. And it is this is why it comes. This is why the book is dangerous. Because love, perfect love, casts out all fear. Hebrews 4.12 goes on. The word of God is living and active, yes. But it pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I believe that testimony from that girl, when she talked about the judgment coming, that was powerful. God's living and active word will search down into the depths of our souls, and it will reveal what is in our hearts. And maybe this is why we draw back, because this is where we've usually hidden all of our deepest, darkest secrets. This is where we hide the hatred we have, maybe, for some people. This is why, where we hide all our pains, our sins, and our guilt, and our shame. Things that we do not want to expose and we do not want people knowing about, we do not want to confront, whether for fear or pain or shame or humiliation or guilt, any number of reasons. But it is the Word of God that is powerful, living and active, that will come and split right down to the centre, the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. God's Word will expose and reach into our lives. But this is the point. He's not doing that to expose us, to humiliate us, to shame us. God doesn't want that. Remember, the goal of our instruction is love. He does not want to hurt us. He wants to cause us repentance if necessary. But he wants to restore us and he wants to renew us ultimately so that we can leave that at the cross and we can go on walking in the power of Jesus and we can follow him and display that love to others. This is what the word of God does. Let's go back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2, into the next chapter. Therefore putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. You see, in light of the eternal and living glory of his word that is being manifested through us and through the glory of his word. It says we remove, or we lay aside some of your translations, we put off these things that we are doing, the sins in our life. Reminds me of Psalm 119, verse 9 to 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Your word I have treasured in your heart that I might not sin against you. Now this is one of my very early memory verses. It's a verse that means a lot to me because I know it practically and I know it experientially. I'll say it frankly again. I used to love weed. 
when I was 18 to 21. And I don't mean I just smoked a couple of joints at weekend. I studied it like you see me doing with the Bible. I could tell you the THC contents of all the different strains, the ones that you crossbreed together, the different types of bud, the different resins. I had imported skins that were acid-free. I had the best grinders, the best bongs, the best pipes. I even had imported vaping technology from Amsterdam 15 years before vaping was even a thing. I took it seriously and I loved it. At the end of every month, I remember at university, I'd have my subscription to High Times magazine come through. Most people were having other sorts of mail-order magazines come through. They would get their centrefolds, I would get mine. Mine was always just a big close-up of a plant, basically. And I, I, don't, I, yeah, I loved it. I used to stare at those plants for hours. I'd stick them on my walls. Now, I'm not saying this to glorify this. I can see some of you laughing. It's laughable when I look back on it. But my point is, that is where my desire was. My heart was given over to those things. I honestly loved it. It consumed all of my life. But what happened? You see, I had an encounter with the living Word of God. The transforming power of that living and active Word of God. And he changed my desires. That's part of my early conversion story. He changed my desires. And I find it slightly funny now, if you know me, you know, I can sit and stare at a page from an old Bible manuscript for hours. Okay? I know the best commentaries, the best websites, the best download pages... I know the best highlighters to use with best thickness of Bible pages. You see, God can take something from your life. Those parts of your personality that may previously have just been used for destructive purposes and he can redeem them and restore them and use them in ways that you never imagined because it's his work, it's his power because the word of God is living and active. We are obedient to the truth and we purify ourselves. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now this didn't happen instantly for me. It's this verse I remember. I remember when I was a young Christian, I loved studying the word of God. Okay, that was what the desire that God had put in my heart. But I still had the old man, these other desires. And it was a battle at some point. I wanted to go study the Word of God, but I knew if I'd had a smoke in the morning, then I'd have to confess, and that would be really annoying, because then I couldn't study the Word of God properly. And it played like that for a while. But very quickly, the desire for the Word of God extinguished the desire for those other things, because it's living and active, and it's powerful. It displaced the desires of the old man. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. You see, this is why we desire the pure milk of the word. It is the source of our growth spiritually. It's our food, our life, our nourishment, our encouragement and our hope all in one. I love to hear of people studying the word of God. Young Callum was telling me the other day about his study of the book of Matthew. I've heard from people of the... Tally was telling me of the conversations they have at Bible college where you get to just discuss the deep things of the word of God. I've had, I'm picking on all the young people, I've had Kaylee come to me and ask for resources, how she can study the Word of God. I'm picking on young people because I love to hear these things coming from young people. But we desire the pure milk of the Word so that we may grow in respect to salvation. If we're at that point where we're not growing in our Christian lives, you need to get into the Word of God. And when I say study, I'm using it in the Hebraic sense, which always meant study in order to live. 
Okay, it was a practical. They didn't even the concept that we have of study being a university setting and accumulation of facts. That's post Renaissance and Enlightenment. In the Hebrew mindset, it was always practical. You study in order to live, and that's how I'm using that term there. So don't don't be mistaken. It might just be one tiny truth, but if you're living it out, you're obedient to the truth and you're purifying yourself. Now, if you don't have this, this desire, quite simply, I suggest you start praying for it. Prayer is a humble acknowledgement that we need God, and this is a prayer I believe that God will always answer. I remember in my young Christian life, I was with an elder Christian gentleman, I won't give his name because some of you, I'm sure some of you all know him here, he's local to this area. And I was giving him, I think it's probably a bit of a story of woe is me, I was listing all the problems in my life, how hard it is. And to me, I'm sure these problems were like the biggest things in the world at the time. And I, I remember his reply to me, he didn't engage me, he didn't entertain any of these things. He just kind of looked at me in a kind of wise old way, he just said, well, get on your knees, man. And he walked off. Now, I, the more I think about that, that was a very good piece of advice. That was a brilliant piece of advice. Prayer is powerful. Prayer changes things. Because we have a living God who hears prayer. And we have a living God who has a living word. Christmas Day, 1939. Great Britain was at war with Nazi Germany. King George addressed the nation. I'm sure many of you have seen the film about King George. He said this, A new year is at hand. We cannot tell what it will bring. If it brings peace, how thankful we shall all be. If it brings us continued struggle, we shall remain undaunted. He then quoted this poem. He said, I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God and that shall be for you a better light and a safer way than any known way. May the almighty hand guide and uphold us. Now I quote this because this was, in, this was 1939, December. Just a few months later, we had Dunkirk. Again, recent film that's just come out. I haven't seen it yet, but I've, I've heard it's very good. The Allied, at Dunkirk, they call it the miracle of Dunkirk, in fact, if you don't know anything about it. The Allied forces were outmaneuvered, unprepared for a German onslaught in France and Belgium. Total annihilation was imminent. Churchill was preparing to address the nation that they'd suffered the biggest military defeat in history. But it didn't happen like that. King George called for a national day of prayer. You can go online and you see the photos and the eyewitness reports of people just queuing outside of Westminster Chapel in London. Every worship house in the country was just overflowing the breams. The nation came together to pray. That was on the Sunday. On the Saturday night before, a decision had been made to evacuate people from the beaches, as many as possible. A message went out that anyone with a vessel of any sort was to sail across the channel and pick people up, pick as many soldiers up as you could and get them out of harm's way. 800 vessels answered that call. They called it the miracle of Dunkirk because three curious events happened that night that allowed that. For some reason, that still baffles historians, and Hitler ordered the army to stop. He ordered his, his onslaught to stop for three days. And no one really knows why. But it was those three days that allowed the troops to get from the inland to the beaches and allow the evacuation to take place. On the Tuesday, a, new, uh, a weird cloud of bad weather came on that meant that the Luftwaffe couldn't fly. It was so bad that they couldn't fly, allowing the troops to get to the beaches again. And then the very next following day, the weather was so clear that there wasn't a single wave on the sea. 
allowing the vessels to get across and the hazardous journey back as much as they could. Three, over 300,000 troops were snatched from the beaches those days. Many of, the, many of them, the ones who went, later went back to Europe and liberated Europe from the Nazis. This is why they call it the miracle of Dunkirk. It makes me think of that verse in 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their ways, I will hear from heaven, I will heal and forgive their sins and restore their land. Now I know that's a different context, but it just reminds me of that verse a little bit there. Quite simply, my point is, get on your knees. Okay, that's the advice. Get on your knees. Long for the pure milk of the word. We need to receive this milk for the good of ourselves, individually, if you want to grow as a Christian. But we also need it for the health of our churches, and as we've seen for bigger things out in the world and the culture as we're salt and light. We do not want to raise a generation of malnourished Christians, of which I believe we have many, through no fault of their own necessarily, but they're not being fed. Notice, it doesn't just say milk. What does it say? Pure milk. The pure milk of the word of God. Psalm 12, verse 6, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in the furnace of the earth, refined seven times. The words of the Lord are pure words. Let me read you a quote by a guy called Dave Hunt. He's a Bible teacher of last generation. He says, we are raising a generation on the spiritual junk food of religious videos, movies, youth entertainment, comic book paraphrases of the Bible. The word of God is being rewritten, watered down, illustrated, dramatised in order to cater for the taste of the carnal mind. That only leads further into the wilderness of doubt and confusion. We all know this to be true in some respects, don't we? Now, I'm not against many of those things per se, But unfortunately, oftentimes, these things are put above the pure milk of the word of God. And that will just produce malnourished Christians. A part of the problem, I believe, maybe in the West, is that we actually have too much, that we don't appreciate it. You see, if you go somewhere where they don't have three meals a day, they appreciate food a lot more. We have food in our supermarkets, we don't really appreciate it, do we? Let's be honest. Again, not really any fault of our own, It's it's just where we are. This is the same thing with the Bible. Okay. We have, you know, I have, you know, 50 plus Bibles in my office. All, all over, they're everywhere, on, especially with the internet. You, there's Word of God is all over the place, but we're probably more illiterate, biblically illiterate now than we have been in our history. Because it's just there, we don't appreciate it. But this was not always the, t- the, the case. You go back to the 13th century, to a man named John Wycliffe. He was the first man to ever translate the Bible into English first English Bible ever. Until then, everything was done in Latin, as it was the, the Catholic Church that, were, that was doing these things. And it was very dangerous to try and translate the Bible into English. But John Wycliffe was a man who, who saw the corruption in the church at that time, and he knew the only way to, to stop this was to make a Bible that people could read, the common man could read for themselves, and he set his life to that task. And he produced a Bible People earnestly desired the word of God. In his time, it cost a week's wages. If you knew someone in your parish with a copy of his Bible, they all had to be handwritten at this stage. There was no printing, so it could take up to like 12 months to, write, to make one of these things. Um, you'd pay a week's wages and you'd get to, get to have it for one hour. And that's what people would do. Just, you could imagine paying for that, one hour of the word of God. Would you give a week's wages for that? 
This was the heart, because there they were starved of the word of God. There was a famine in the land, to use the words of Amos, and they needed the word of God. Why? Because it is life. It brings life, it gives life, it grows people. This is what it does. They needed the word of God, they understood that. (coughs) William Tyndale, a couple of centuries later, 15th, 16th century, he translated the first complete English Bible from the original languages, not from the Latin. Um, And again, he wasn't allowed to do that. The Bishop of London told him no. Uh, The reason why was because they were worried that if people started reading the word of God for themselves, they would realise where the church was pulling a fast one on various issues. They were concerned it would cause you know, uprisings and things like this. It did in some respects. But this is because the word of God <laughs> cannot be chained. It was illegal to own a Bible in England. William Tyndale actually fled to the continent where he made his Bible and it was so popular, there was such a demand for it, people were smuggling it back into London through bales of hay and you know, the shipping docks in London. Um, it was being smuggled back in. There's an interesting story that goes with it. The Bishop of London at the time, who was the man who opposed Tyndale, he came up with a good idea. He said, I'm going to buy every copy of this Bible I can and get my hands on. I'm going to burn them as a public show that you do not translate the Bible without the church's approval or the king's approval at this time. And the king hadn't given it at this time. So he approached a merchant, this bishop, and basically he said, I want you because you're, you're the common man, you, you can go to the docks and you can buy as many of these things as you can. I can't do that. Um, so that was, the, that was the scheme that he put in place. It just so happens that this merchant was a good friend of William Tyndale. Um, now, the merchant was in a difficult position because he couldn't refuse or else he'd kind of implicate himself. So he was very concerned. So he, he went and spoke to Tyndale. You know, he was telling him, you know, what am I going to do? He wants me to destroy all these Bibles so people won't be getting them. And much to his surprise, Tyndale just turned to him and said, I think that's great. Let him buy as many as he wants. And the guy looked at him, what? and then he said, oh, by the way, my price has just tripled. With the money that he earned from the inflated Bible prices, he produced the second revised edition that ended up being way more popular than the first edition. Okay? God is, he has a sense of humour in some respects. I find that really amusing. And the Tyndale Bible pretty much changed England. Every Bible we have is pretty much based on the Tyndale Bible soon. He travelled the world. This guy did burn a lot of Bibles. He burnt them in front of St. Paul's Cathedral. But he burnt the first edition ones. He was paying three times the rate for them. And by doing that, he was actually supporting the translation of a new Bible. And I just find that hilarious. Divine irony, almost. 2 Timothy 2.10 Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. Tyndale ultimately died for his love for the word of God. He was executed, burnt at the stake and executed. His last recorded words, I've shared this with you before, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. What he meant by that was, Lord, please can the king give the authority that this Bible can go out among the people, as they used to say. Two years later, King Henry VIII had a change of heart for sordid reasons, but even so. And he commissioned the first authorised Bible to be authorised in Great Britain. It was called the Great Bible. Not only that, that he ordered by royal decree that a a copy of this Bible should be placed in every parish in the country. And they should have a reader available to read to people if they're illiterate. 
so that they could hear the word of God. Tyndale's prayer was answered. If you go to the British Museum, or the British Library rather, they actually have Henry VIII's personal copy of his great Bible. It's all amazingly illuminated, it's a beautiful thing. But the history attached to it is even more wonderful. We long for the pure milk of the word, that by it we may grow in our salvation. Last verse. He says, verse 3, If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord... If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Tasted speaks of experience. In the word of God, we experience Jesus Christ because he is the word made flesh. Let me read you a quote from A.W. Tozer to finish. He says, the question is this. What are we allowing the word of God to say to us? What is our reaction to that word? Have we consumed and digested the book? Have we absorbed the word of God into our lives? Or are we among those content to be part of a Christian congregation where there are no extreme demands, where fellowship will be consistently pleasant and without responsibility? When we as Christians love our Lord Jesus Christ with heart and soul and mind, the word of God is on our side. If we could only grasp the fact that God's word is more than a book... It is the revelation of divine truth from the person of God himself. It has come as a divine communication in the sacred scriptures. It has come to us in the guidance and conviction imparted by the divine spirit of God within our beings. It has been modelled for us in Jesus Christ, the incarnate word and the eternal son. And this is why at the end of this great book, in the book of Revelation, when we see Jesus coming back on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, with the armies of heaven behind him, it says that he will be called by a new name, and his name will be called the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. We'd ask now that we would be obedient to your word, that we would purify ourselves, Lord. We pray that you will feed us, encourage us, that we would long for that pure milk of the word, that we would grow in respect to salvation, that we would grow fervently in our love for one another as we do this, Lord God. We pray that by your grace, Lord, you would use us in expanding your kingdom. We pray, Lord, that we would see people born again by the power of the living and enduring word of God. And we pray this, Lord, by your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.